0: Welcome, once again, to the second wave of quarantined, evidence-based radio. As always, you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website, evidencebasederrata.com. So before we get to tonight's stories, I do have a couple of programming notes. Uh, first off, I want to apologize, uh, last week's show was recorded the week before. Uh, there were some technical difficulties that prevented it from airing on time, and then it turned out that I really needed it to be for last week because, well, um, like some of you, I would assume, last week was rough. Uh, It took me several days to stop being unreasonably angry at the world and everything in it. And so, yeah, it made working on anything, even my day job, pretty hard. And um, my day job is pretty busy right now. So, yeah, I had a lot to do. And so obviously, I think you know how I feel about this big item in the news from the last, uh, few weeks. Uh, and so, yeah, I just wanted to talk about that for a few seconds. I would like to assert, and of course, this is solely my opinion. Uh, I would like to assert with a large amount of confidence that this is a purely religious based decision. And this is part of the dangers of the erosion of the separation of church and state, something that I am vehemently against. And it is also very much the hypocritical stance of a group of people who want to limit the government's influence on their lives and especially their businesses, while also being insistent that government police the lives and bodies of others. And in fact, it is even more awful because there is a very specific clause in this um, episode that we are dealing with, wherein supposedly women should uh, be forced to have babies uh, because I think as Alito said, there is a uh, deficiency of a quote unquote domestic supply of infants and and so uh this is really horrible and completely is just in- unconscionable. And I can't imagine how someone could actually write that with a straight face. And so as noted by Slate's Dahlia Lithwick, Forcing pregnant people to carry to term for the benefit of others isn't a gentle or neutral recalibration of fetal personhood rights against maternal liberty interests. It is the very definition of subjugation, which is, quote, deeply rooted in this nation's history and tradition in ways the 14th Amendment actually sought to correct. And so the 14th Amendment sought to prevent the state from depriving Black women of their rights to family autonomy and to allow their bodies to be used to create more slaves that could then be taken from them. This is very much what the 14th Amendment was about. It was about Black women's right to keep their children, but also to not be forced to have children that could then be sold into servitude. And while babies might not be being sold into servitude today, the parallel stands. You should not be forced to give birth for someone else's pleasure. And so it's extremely upsetting. And of course, if you look into this even more deeply, uh, you'll see that the domestic supply of white infants might be a issue but there are plenty of other infants that are just not as desirable to these people who think that women should be forced to carry uh children to term and yeah there's just i could go on and on and on and so I do want to be concise about this and not keep it up forever. And so we do have other things to talk about. And one of those (laughs) um, is very, very different, Um (laughs) which is that we are in the midst or actually coming towards the end of our biannual pledge week. And so we have two pledge weeks, one in the fall, one in the spring, and we have definitely sprung into spring this week. And so, yeah, um, if you're able to, you could go to valleyfreeradio.org slash donate. And yeah, it absolutely... Helps so much Valley Free Radio is a fully nonprofit volunteer run operation. No one takes a salary, no one is being paid through commercials. We do have a couple of underwriters um, the way that PBS does, but um, even those are not uh very. We don't have a lot of those, especially in the current economy, unfortunately. And I absolutely understand that there's a lot of competing interests right now. But uh, if you do care about the station um, and you have the extra cash, it's always appreciated. And so we really do rely on the generous support of listeners like you to help us keep the lights on and the signal flowing. Now, of course, donating at any time of the year is appreciated, but this is the week where we really push to make sure that we can see that our budget is going to be in the black for the next, um, for the next year. And so, again, if you can help, please go to valleyfreeradio.org slash donate. And every little bit helps. So if you can only donate a dollar, we would love that. Um, we also just like to see how many different people donate in order to see how many people out there are really appreciating this station. And, um, you know, the other thing you can do is that if you're interested in being a part of the station, we're always interested in having new people as well. But, um, this week, we'd really appreciate if you could make a donation. Okay. Let us go back now to our regularly scheduled COVID watch. Unfortunately, Omicron sub-variants continue to develop. The latest is BA.2.12.1, which is now, uh, or as of the other day, at 42.6% of all new infections in the United States. And, of course, with each of these new Omicron variants, they seem to become even more transmissible. Now, so far, it looks like the vaccine still works well to prevent severe illness and death. The new sub-variants continue, unfortunately, though, to be better at evading immune responses that prevent infection altogether. This is especially true for those who are unvaccinated and those who have recovered from the BA1 subvariant as their only source of immunity. And this is actually a blow to pharmaceutical companies that have been developing new vaccines with BA1 specific boosters, which may not actually turn out to be all that pr- protective against new variants. Unlike when Omicron first appeared, new Omicron sublineages have started to target the humoral immunity, antibodies, and other adaptive responses induced by Omicron itself, including the humoral immunity induced by post-vaccination Omicron infections, the authors of the new study um, from Beijing wrote. This poses a great challenge to establishing protection and suggests that Omicron BA1-based vaccines may not be the ideal antigen for inducing broad-spectrum protection against emerging Omicron sublineages." And so one of the reasons that it's interesting that this study was done in uh, Beijing is that China has been using a different kind of vaccine. They've been using a vaccine that has an inactivated virus in it rather than the mRNA vaccines. So it shows a little more how people who have uh, different immunities are reacting. And so it shows especially – it's especially important for people who – um, and we know there's a lot of them in this country who are uh completely unvaccinated or have been relying on a previous infection's immunity to help them. But again, the good news is, as much as there can be for good news, uh, is that researchers don't believe we'll have another extreme spike – like when the original strain of Omicron hit the world because the vaccines are um, the, especially the mRNA vaccines do seem to be holding up pretty well against it, um, even if it is still being able to better evade the immune system. But again, I'm still wearing a mask uh, pretty much everywhere. I uh, will continue to do this for some time and, um, yeah, I'm waiting on my latest results from, um, my weekly testing. I'm hoping that I am COVID free. I did attend a, um, uh, charity event last Friday where a lot of people were not wearing masks. So, um, yeah, um, I definitely hope that we won't have an issue with this. And so, yeah, um, it just continues to go and go and go. Okay. So, uh, once again, I, uh, would like to note quickly that this is our pledge week. I've been doing this show now for like five years, I think. Um, it's just it wow, um it may even be more than that, frankly, and you know I've had a great time doing it. It's been sad to not be recording live, but you know, I continue to uh adapt and to be committed to this because I think it's a um you know I think it's an important thing to do to continue to talk to people about science and also to frame it in ways that uh, help people see that a lot of times you're not actually mad at science, you are mad at other parts of what is going on, like capitalism. Um, And so unfortunately, uh, I do have to deal in a tiny bit of capitalism at the moment. Um, I hope that you do enjoy this show and some of the other shows on this quirky little radio station. And so I do have to ask that if you have the means, you go to valleyfreeradio.org slash donate to help this and other shows that you may listen to continue to be on the air. And so, yeah, um, again, if you don't have the means, that's fine. But if you do, we really rely on the community. Okay let's talk about a story that I haven't mentioned before, but you probably heard about it in some respect. This is the first transplantation of a pig heart into a human. And so a 57-year-old man with severe heart disease, David Bennett Sr., received a heart which had been genetically modified to be accepted by the patient's immune system. However, Bennett died just two months later. And so at this time, the cause of his death, at the time, the cause of his death was unknown. But now doctors think that a pig virus may have contributed to his death. And so recently, Dr. Bartley Griffith, director of the Cardiac Transplant Program at the University of Maryland Medical Center, who performed the transplant, has revealed that DNA from porcine cytomegalovirus, a virus that infects pigs, was detected in the patient prior to his death. This is according to the MIT Technology Review. We are beginning to learn why he passed on, Griffith said in a webinar on April 20th discussing the transplant, the review reported. The virus, quote, may maybe was an, was the actor or could be the actor that set this whole thing off. And so despite the fact that the virus had been screened for for several times and the pig itself was supposed to have been raised in a way in which it could not be infected with this virus, the problem is is that current screenings only detect active infections and so you can have a, or pigs can have a latent infection where the virus is still present, but not actively replicating. And thus the team was not able to detect that it was present in the heart tissue. And so at 20 days, blood tests began to pick up really low levels of porcine cytomegalovirus DNA in Bennett's body, But they say that the, you know, the amount was so small that they thought it might even just be a, um, an error, a lab error. And so, um, part of the problem was that these tests actually took a long time. So they would draw blood and then it would take up to 10 days to get the information back. And so 10 days is a lot of time in someone who is sick. And so, it definitely came as a shock when he started to uh, deteriorate. And so by day 40, and after his health had taken a distinct turn for the worst, new tests showed a marked increase in viral DNA levels in his blood. Now, I want to be clear. It's important to note that the cause of death is not thought to have been direct infection by the virus. So this doesn't seem to be a zoonotic infection that leapt to the um, person himself. Rather, um, they think that is without the pig's immune system to thwart it, the virus basically began to replicate uncontrollably. And even though the virus is specific to pig cells, it then filled up the person's immune, I'm sorry, blood system and their body. And this most likely caused a severe immune system response. And Inflammation which led to uh, what's called a cytokine explosion. And so um, this is one of those things where an infection or a infectious element can actually cause the body to overreact and the body's overreaction is actually what ends up. Um, killing the person. And so um, some of the deaths of the Spanish flu, um, the 1918 flu were thought to be caused by this. So it wasn't the flu itself that caused people to die necessarily. It was their body's overreaction to the infection. And so, yeah, that is definitely something that they think might have been an issue. Joachim Denner of the Institute of Virology at the Free University of Berlin, who led a study on baboons with transplanted pig hearts, um, says the solution to the problem is more accurate testing. It's a latent virus and hard to detect, said Denner. But if you test the animal better, it will not happen. The virus can be detected and easily removed from pig populations. But unfortunately, they didn't use a good assay and didn't detect the virus. And this was the reason. The donor pig was infected and the virus was transmitted by the transplant. He also noted that the virus was almost certainly not the sole reason for the death. Now, the reason the patient needed a transplant in the first place uh, was because he was suffering from serious heart disease. And he was not even on the list for a human heart because he had previously disregarded medical advice. So I don't know if you know, um, but organ donation lists have extremely strict rules about uh, people's conduct and their lifestyle for being on a transplantation list. And that's why, um, because so few people are organ donors. So um, definitely, if you're not an organ donor yet, I do suggest you become one. Um, it's very easy to do, and you really will be saving people's lives. Even if you don't think that you have, you know, even if you are out of shape or unwell, you can still donate parts of your body that are not affected by the issues that you have, and they can still really help people. And, um, so yeah, so he wasn't eligible for a human heart and, uh, the researchers note that in the end, the pig heart actually lasted a lot longer than the initial tests with human to human transplantation. The first place that person patients to receive human hearts only lived for a few days at best. So, you know, this isn't defeat for the researchers uh one of the big things they need to do is just be more vigilant in future that there are no lurking infections and so yeah he was a very sick person and um you know at first this looked like it was a really good fit and he might have actually uh, been able to recover a lot of function but because of this virus um it just didn't work out and so i definitely don't think it is cause to stop working on, um, the idea of being able to transplant a um, pig's heart into a human. Um, I think it just, you know, is a object lesson in the fact that sometimes nature, uh, sneaks up on you and, um, we just have to be a lot more careful. So yeah, um, very interesting and very, uh, I think it's it's a very interesting uh <laughs> it's a very interesting way to try and deal with the fact that we don't have enough human organs to go around and so pigs are very like humans and I think that um they may in the future be something that people use For transplantations. Now, we could talk about the ethical ramifications of that. Um, I I see both sides. Um, Obviously, pigs are intelligent animals, um, but I'm going to be honest and say that, you know, I had pork tacos for lunch. Um, I try not to do it that often, but I did, and I do. And, you know, pigs are great, but They are also, we consider them to be agricultural animals. And so um, I understand the side of raising an animal for use in humans can be considered to be pretty unethical to some people, but also uh, saving human lives with these, um, you know, with these animal organs you know, you really have to balance both sides of it and see where you come down. And it's okay if you come down on the side of, I don't think it's okay. Um, I think that there is definitely room for people on both sides. And I think that it is important to keep pushing the boundaries of what we can do to, um, save people, uh, If it is going to give them a good quality of life. Um, I've talked previously about my feelings on keeping people alive, um, keeping animals alive as well, um, beyond when they have good quality of life. I'm kind of opposed to that. Um, And I think that people should be able to make their own decisions about that. Um, And I just... That could be a whole discussion again, Uh, but we should, um, you know, table it because there are other things to talk about tonight. Um, And so, yeah, but if you enjoy my uh, rambling and... uh, Jumping around when I talk about these sorts of stories, uh, I would once again um, just ask if you are able to, if you could donate to help keep this and other shows at Valley Free Radio on the air. And so once again, we are completely volunteer. uh, And these two pledge drives we do each year uh, really do keep a Give us the bulk of our operating of our operating funds for the year. And so we have an amazing and dedicated community of both programmers and listeners. Uh, We definitely know that you are out there listening and you do donate, and that is amazing. Um, So if you haven't yet remembered to do it this week, you can go to valleyfreeradio.org slash donate. And remember, once again, if you don't have money right now, you can definitely um, do so later in the um, month or later whenever you have some. Um, But, you know, we do like to get it this week so we can really be able to plan for the future. So one of the things that we're hoping to do this year is to actually update our soundboard. Um, Our soundboard has been working hard for a lot of years. Certainly for all the years I've been at the station and um, I was told at the time that it was a hand-me-down. So it was already a hand-me-down when we got it. It's lived a good and full life, but it deserves to have a good retirement as well. And so, yeah, um, valleyfreeradio.org slash donate. And, um, if you have the means, you could also, uh, sign up for a monthly pledge, which would be amazing. And so, yeah, thank you so much for considering donating to Valley Free Radio and, you know, to keep shows like this on. I assume that you enjoy this show if you're listening. <laughs> okay. Um, we are going to take a break. We're going to do some show promos and some PSAs. And when we come back, we are going to shift from human health to the health of coral reefs. So do come back or stay tuned for that. You're listening to Evidence-Based Radio. Outbreaks of whooping cough or pertussis are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine called Tdap during the third trimester of each pregnancy, women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov pertussis slash pregnant. That's pertussis. P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S. Table of Contents is a weekly music program that assembles an assortment of songs and sounds of many genres, and which may entail literally taking a random collection of musical sources off the shelf and giving them a turn on the table or spin in a CD or tape player, each week presenting shows which can at times be organized orderly, and at other times perhaps be not as much so, yet never dull. Tune in Friday nights 10 p.m. till midnight on WXOJ LP Northampton 103.3 FM. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov slash COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Hey, this is Wendy, host of Valley Free Radio's subculture music program featuring new wave, post-punk, indie, and electronic music from the 70s to today. Join me every Friday night from 8 to 10 p.m. here on WXOJ or stream it live from your favorite listening device at valleyfreeradio.org. The Forbes Library staff would like to remind you of the incredible resource that you have in your local public library. We have tens of thousands of books for you to check out, music CDs, movies, newspapers from around the region, the state, and the country. We have a wide variety of magazines and free computer and internet access every day. We also have our incredible reference services there to help you answer particularly vexing problems. All of this is free, locally available at 20 West Street in Northampton, so come by and check us out in person or at www.forbslibrary.org or call 587-1011 for more information. In our polarizing political climate, it's become difficult to find shows willing to discuss, much less listen to, different points of view. Our job is to talk about things we hope you'll find interesting without all the shouting. To disagree without being disagreeable. To provide incisive factual commentary that cuts through the weekly spin cycle and aims to enlighten, not enrage, our listeners. So tune in for Civil Politics, Friday evenings at 7, here on Valley Free Radio, or anytime at civilpoliticsradio.com. Okay, we are back. You are once again listening to evidence-based radio. And as promised, we are going to pivot from human health to the health of coral reefs. So it has officially hit over 80 degrees. And so I know a lot of people are probably starting to think about and even plan trips to the beach uh, to start enjoying this. And uh, for those who actually enjoy the seaside, I do, but I know that a lot of people don't actually enjoy the seaside. However, researchers have discovered, uh, and this is something that we knew was happening, but we didn't know why. And so we now know why some corals are affected by a common ingredient in sunscreen. So it turns out that the thing that helps prevent humans from getting skin cancer and damage by UV light actually turns out to become deadly to coral. And it turns out that coral that have suffered bleaching events are, frankly, not surprisingly more susceptible Researchers at Stanford University have identified the way in which oxybenzone is converted by coral into a harmful substance actually when exposed to UV light. And so the researchers actually used uh, anemones, which are related to coral, but grow a lot faster. Corals grow very slowly. And they tested growth of the anemones under various conditions. Healthy anemone exposed to a day-night cycle that included UV grew well, but when oxybenzone was added to the water, it took just over two weeks for the anemones to completely die off. But another set of anemones who were not exposed to a day-night cycle weren't affected. And so it turns out that both the chemical and exposure to UV light is required. And so, both of those are required to turn the oxybenzone into basically a killer molecule. And so, to figure out what was going on, the researchers exposed anemones to 18 hours of oxybenzone. They then ground them up and looked at the chemicals found in the samples. They found that most ended up with a glucose attached to them. And so in vitro, oxybenzone doesn't cause any reactions that seem to damage biomolecules. But once glucose is attached and UV light comes into play, this leads to the glucose-linked oxybenzone to chemically alter biochemicals. And unfortunately, it does it catalytically. And that means that almost none of the glucose oxybenzone is actually consumed during this process. And this unfortunately means that a little can go a long way. And as noted, corals that have had a bleaching event are even more susceptible to the effects. This is because researchers found that much of the material ended up not in the anemone cells themselves, but rather in their symbiotic microorganisms. And so for animals that are healthy, there's actually a protective effect that these symbiotes are conveying to the affected anemone these symbiotes are missing in bleached coral. In fact, that's kind of the definition of bleached coral is that they've lost their microbial partners. In healthy coral, the symbiotes took up enough of the damaging glucose oxybenzone to protect the coral completely. But in a bleached version of the same coral, the glucose oxybenzone proved fatal. This suggests that sunscreen-covered humans are an especial risk to reefs that are experiencing or have recently experienced a bleaching event. The researchers suspect that the enzyme that adds the glucose probably developed to make toxins more soluble and therefore easier to purge. And the very fact that oxybenzone is so good at using UV means that it has the greater potential to use it in unexpected ways. But the good news is that now we understand the mechanism and will be better able to develop sunscreens that save human skin and spare important coral reefs. So, yeah, that is an unfortunate one because obviously we want people to wear sunscreen. But we also don't want to be killing coral. Coral are very important to our um, ecosystem, and they are very important to the oceans, and it's all just unfortunate at the moment. But hopefully we can develop sunscreens that won't hurt coral, and we know now not to use those in areas with coral. Okay, so uh I do have to take a moment once again just to remind you uh that this is our pledge week and it is wrapping up so um definitely only this one week and then we won't ask you about this until the fall and um yeah I'm already looking forward to the fall it's only been hot for like a day and I'm already like ugh oh, no I miss the cold Some of you may love the heat, though. Um, One of my coworkers is from Florida, and um, she is very excited about it getting warm. Um, But yeah. Uh, If you have the means and you have not already donated, if you have the means and you've already donated but could donate more, (laughs) um, please do stop by the website, valleyfreeradio.org slash donate, and again, a dollar, five dollars, um a (laughs) hundred dollars, whatever you can afford would be really appreciated, especially, um, as I know again, that there are a lot of competing, um, causes right now. And just the fact that everything is more expensive right now. And, um, yeah. So if you have the money, please do. If not, um, you can always, um, You know, donate at a different time of the year if you have money, or obviously we just love having people listen to the show. So if you have it, please do help out. If you don't, please don't feel guilty. So we are going to stick with the ocean and we're going to talk about a fan favorite. I hope certainly. I am a fan and they are one of my favorite. We are going to talk about cephalopods again. Um, We do talk about them rather a lot around here. And so a new DNA sequencing project has found that squids and octopus and presumably also cuttlefish, they are the uh, third member of this club, have a genome that is unlike most other animals. Instead of highly conserved sequences of genes, their DNA has genes that have moved throughout the chromosomes to create new and unique pairings. Co-author Caroline Alberton, a biologist at the University of Chicago Marine Biological Laboratory, explains how this might help explain their unique evolution. A hypothesis is that these new gene arrangements resulted in new expression patterns. That means these genes could be used in a new place or in a new way, Alberton says. Now, having such a mix and match genome could help explain the advanced nervous system and incredible vision of these animals. Alberton and her colleagues first started to sequence an octopus genome in 2015. This was the first time they noted the difference from other animals. All vertebrates, with jaws, have copied their genome twice sometime in the distant past. This means that mammals, birds, fish, amphibians, and sharks all have four copies of the original vertebrate genome. Some of the genes have been lost along the way, and others repurposed by evolution in these animals. It opens up a whole genomic playground for evolution to act on, Alberton said. Maybe one of those four genes can go off and start doing something else. They'd assumed that cephalopods would also have duplicate genomes, but they found no evidence of this, even in that first genome. The team has now gone back and looked at three genomes – those for the Hawaiian bobtail squid, the longfin inshore squid, and the California two spot octopus. They used brand new sequencing techniques that allow for much longer stretches of the genome to be sequenced at one time. Alberton compares it to saying that if the genome were a book, these new techniques move us from reading paragraphs to whole chapters. Albertin's study co authors, Hannah, Schmidbar and Oleg Simakov of the University of Vienna and their colleagues compared these genes to thousands of similar genes across other animal species. All in all, they found 505 blocks of three or more genes that are common to squid and octopus but not found in other animals. The result was unexpected, as most animals have similar gene orders, even animals that are quite far apart on the tree of life. That, to evolutionary biologists, suggests there is a reason you keep that gene order, Alberton said, and cephalopods seem to be breaking these rules. Now, it's not clear how these fascinating animals have managed to develop this unique genome, but it may be in part reliant on transposons or so-called jumping genes, which can move around in the genome. And interestingly, many of the unique combinations are found to be active in the nervous system. And so... This, or in nervous tissue, which suggests that they may have indeed some role in the uniqueness of these animals and how they have brains uh you know in their legs, and how they have amazing eyesight and all sorts of things that they do and are amazing about them okay so if you want to hear more about octopus squid uh, cuttlefish, uh, tardigrades. Uh, let's see, what are our other fa- fan favorites around here? We're going to talk about Mars in a bit. Um, all those things and all the other things that I always say, birds, don't forget birds. Um, if you enjoy hearing about these things and you have a little extra cash, valleyfreeradio.org slash donate. Um, it's really helpful, really important. Um we use all of the money to do improvements on the studio, to make the signal better, to make people's uh, shows be able to be more uh, professional sounding. We are hoping to update that board, so we'll get a lot of really great uh, new sound out of it. And yeah, so we definitely... Don't have a lot of overhead. In fact, we have virtually no overhead. Nobody gets paid. Uh, everything goes back as an investment into the station, uh, into things like paying for the internet so that this, uh, show that these shows can go out on streaming and paying literally for the rent and the lights. Uh, and so we really appreciate people being able to help us with that by donating at valleyfreeradio.org slash donate. Okay, so we are going to stay in the ocean for a minute, but we're going to discuss a recent find by the EV Nautilus crew. Now, I've mentioned this before, but if you want to see neat underwater footage, if you're looking for something that just is wholesome and fascinating and just great to watch, Eevee Nautilus videos are usually pretty amazing and they do a lot of highlight reels. So you're not just watching them go through, uh, you know, hours and hours of desolate uh, (laughs) featureless ocean floor. They do, you know, highlight reels where they show you the best stuff. And so back on the 23rd of April, the E.V. Nautilus's uh, ROV found a feature which looks very much like a yellow brick road. And the people looking at the feed at that point, the scientists actually, you know, quipped about that and talked about, you know, a road to Atlantis. And that is why I wanted to talk about it specifically. And so the ROV footage shows a strip of rock that looks very much like, well, a brick road, complete with straight lines that conspiracy theorists often say can't possibly be created by nature. The road is actually hyaloclastic, wait, sorry, hyaloclastite rock which forms from lava of high energy volcanic eruptions, which cool rapidly as they hit the ocean water. And so that creates stress and then stress causes fractures and you get this sort of brick looking rock. And so actually, interestingly, they originally thought it might be a dry lake bed, but they really later realized that the rock was volcanic. The formation is within the Papa Hanomoku Akea Marine National Monument. I listened to that several times. I hope I got it mostly right. An expanse of the Pacific to the Northwest of Hawaii. And so again, I love this find because it just goes to show that sometimes nature does create objects that look very much human made, but have an actual scientific explanation and are 100% natural. And so just in case I haven't mentioned it lately, Atlantis is not somewhere that we can quote unquote find. Now, there are good arguments to be made that it's an allusion to a real city state in ancient times that existed, but not in some sort of ephemeral Outside space and it wasn't this advanced civilization that had, you know, laser weapons and all of this ridiculousness that has been put onto it in later years. All of the stuff about, you know, hugely advanced technologies, you know, uh, ancient wisdom, all of that. I mean, they are supposed to have been wise at one point, but all of the really like crazy stuff was all later additions to the story. And in fact, if you remember, the framework of the story is that the um, narrator is telling this person about Atlantis to remind them that Athens used to be such a cool place that it actually defeated the the Atlanteans in battle. So yeah, they definitely didn't have uh, any kind of advanced weaponry. Um, If they were, uh, you know, defeated by the Athenians, who definitely did not have laser guns, just going to put it out there. Um, You know, definitely the ancients had probably more advanced things than we even know about now, but not laser guns. So yeah. Um <laughs> definitely not, okay, um, so yep, just one more time valleyfreeradio.org slash donate uh, and so we are going to wrap up tonight by moving from the ocean to space, and as promised, we are going to check in with our friends on Mars. I have to report that there is good news and bad news from the red planet. Last, NASA lost contact with the Ingenuity helicopter on May 3rd. This was due to dust accumulating on its solar panels, which is of course a perpetual issue on the red planet. And of course, the solar panels are essential for charging the helicopter's six lithium ion batteries. And of course, it couldn't come at a worse time, as Mars is entering the dead of winter in just a few short months. Once they lost contact, they figured the craft had gone into a sort of safe mode, where most everything, including its clock, shuts down to preserve energy and to prevent damage from the cold night temperatures, which are more than 100 degrees Fahrenheit below zero. The team hoped that Ingenuity would be able to recharge its batteries and call out to Perseverance, our friend Percy the Rover, but the problem was that with its internal clock having reset, Perseverance wouldn't be listening out for its signal after the sun had charged its batteries back up. So the engineers, so the engineering team did a huge thing. They halted all operations on Perseverance and reset its command to simply sit and listen intently for Ingenuity's call. Now, remember that Ingenuity started out as a a sidecar to Perseverance. In some of the project, uh, people didn't even want to take the risk of adding ingenuity to the mission at all. It was just supposed to be a little proof of concept. It was supposed to do a couple of missions, and then they were expecting that it would be left over and and Percy would go on and do the bulk of the missions. And so now... We get, we've gotten to a point where the entire mission was reoriented to focus on saving it. Crazy. And luckily, it worked. After around 24 hours, Ingenuity called into Perseverance to let it know that it was awake and that it had around 41% battery. They hoped to be able to bring the batteries back up to 100% and resume missions soon. But with this success comes sacrifice. The team has had to make some drastic changes to the craft's operating system, including having the helicopter's heater only engage if it detects temperatures of negative 40 degrees Fahrenheit rather than the previous five degrees, which may have consequences for the many off-the-shelf components of the helicopter's design. And so this may, in fact, be the end for the beginning of the end, at least, for this amazing little helicopter's mission on Mars as the planet plunges towards winter. So that is good news, bad news. Good news, it's still working. Bad news, we just don't know for how much longer. But it's so amazing what it has done so far. It has really... I want to say persevered (laughs) and, uh, you know, it's overcome a lot of technical glitches and it's really gotten, um, some good science done. And so, yeah. And finally tonight, a new study shows that plants will grow in lunar regolith, but frankly, they hate it. (laughs) Lunar regolith is loose, dusty material created by the fact that the moon is constantly being bombarded by micrometeors. The first samples from the moon were thought to be potentially contaminated with xenobacteria, and so plants were briefly exposed to it to see if it would alter them at all, but no growing experiments were conducted. But NASA has since developed a material called JSC1A that mimics the properties of lunar regolith. But unfortunately, there are still significant differences between real lunar regolith and the lab made analog. And some of these would be specifically needed in order to see just how plants respond to actual lunar soil. For instance, Earth's oxidate oxida- oxidizing environment creates differences in the chemical states of some of the metals present in the JSC1A. There are also higher levels of titanium and some trace minerals in lunar soil. There is also a difference in the glass present in lunar soil, so that is obviously from this micrometeor impacts you get. Um, glass that is created when the rock is um, heated extremely by the impact and then cools, whereas the JSC1A uses um, glass from volcanic Mm -hmm. sources from here on Earth. All of this is to say that the researchers needed to get their hands on some of the real deal. So they obtained samples from three lunar missions, Apollo 11, 12, and 17. The researchers used small samples, because there isn't that much lunar soil to go around, to grow Arabidopsis, a small flowering plant related to mustard that is used in biology research and is thus well understood. They used JSC1A as a control. What they found was that in all of the lunar samples, growth was slower and more erratic than the control. The plants took longer to unfurl their leaves, didn't grow as tall, and had altered pigmentation. Plants did best in the youngest soil. They found signs of phosphate starvation, metal toxicity, and reactive oxygen problems by looking at which stress genes were activated in the lunar samples. And so some of that oxidation issue was probably due to the differences in the iron of the soils. So again, there are these real differences. Overall, they divided the plants into three different groups, defective, small, and near normal. But even the near normal plants struggled, and it's doubtful that anything edible could be grown in such conditions, which is obviously something that people are looking for. Of course, this was the most extreme version of the experiment. The plants were watered using a nutrient solution, but there was no organic material or microbial growth within the lunar regolith to combat some of the heavy metals, for instance. But making lunar regolith more amenable would require inputs, which would have to be brought to the moon, and as we all know, every ounce of payload is precious and expensive. Chemical treatments might help, but again, you'd need to bring them to the moon. And so the most possible forward move would be to use the data to genetically engineer plants that could more readily adapt to such harsh soil. But it also tells us that we need more lunar regolith uh, in order to be able to further these uh, research goals because the uh because the jsc1a just doesn't quite cut it when it comes to the real data that we need okay so that is all for tonight i do just want to remind you one more time that if you enjoyed this show and others on valley free radio that it would be really helpful if you have the means, if you could go to valleyfreeradio.org slash donate and make a contribution. I am uh just so delighted to be able to do this um show, even when I have to uh record in odd places. And, um, so if there was some background tonight, I noise tonight, I apologize. I am, uh, recording from my, um, actually from a borrowed office. So, uh, but I do it because I want to get this out to you each week because I really enjoy doing it and I really think it's important. And, um, if you would like to help contribute to, Uh, keeping that space available for me to do this in, uh, either remotely or physically. One last time, valleyfreeradio.org slash donate. Have a great week. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.